books and reading at their very best are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Do you read historical fiction or narrative nonfiction and wonder where your favorite authors do their research for the books you love? Our guest this week, Jenny Cole, is an archivist with the Filson Historical Society. An archivist is like a highly specialized librarian who takes care of historical materials such as letters, diaries, transcripts, photos, or even objects, and organizes them to preserve them for the public use. And the Filson Historical Society is just a different kind of library, a research library of the history of our region. Jenny had a father who loved history and a mother who immersed herself in adventure novels. Combine the two and their influences produced in their daughter a book lover who's looking for the stories within the raw material of historical archives. In this episode, we concentrate on the stories of public health. The Filson is encouraging the public to write down their experiences for posterity's sake so future generations can know what the COVID era was like. But we also talked to Jenny about the local stories pertaining to the Spanish flu of 1918, as well as the tuberculosis epidemic that brought Waverly Hill Sanatorium to prominence before it was known as one of the world's most haunted places. Jenny tells us how anyone can use the services of the Filson, how you can access all of their workshops and lectures for free during the quarantine, and the similarities and differences she sees in the Spanish flu pandemic and our current coronavirus reality. Our guest today is someone who works at what might be considered a jewel in Louisville, Kentucky. It's been around for many years, but I think people forget what a great resource it is. It's the Filson Historical Society. And our guest today is Jenny Cole, who is the Director of Collections Access. So she's going to tell us about what she does and what the Filson does and, and how it relates to what's been going on in the world. So welcome, Jenny. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here to talk with you all today and about the Filson and and history and and what it is that we do. So your title sounds a little complicated and maybe a little harder to understand than, uh, say, a job like firefighter. So tell us what you do as director of collections access. What does that mean? Sure. So my training is as an archivist, which is also not necessarily something that everybody immediately knows what it is. My grandmother used to tell everyone I was an archaeologist because she said (laughs) she understood what that was, (laughs) but that it sounded better. But as the director of collections access, what I'm really trying to do as my day-to-day job at the Filson is making sure that I'm leading the collections department, which would be manuscripts, photographs, library, rare and regular materials, uh, digital collections, and museum objects, which you think of as more like three-dimensional, making sure people have access to those or get linked to that. And there's two arms. One is what you think, like reference, like the circulation desk at the library, someone who's answering your questions, getting you what you need. But the other side of that is the cataloging. So, you know, if you want to find a book at LFPL, you look in their catalog. It's the same thing for these original materials, these museum items, digital objects, the same as books. We, we want to get them cataloged so people can find them too. So I manage the staff of those things. So what attracted you to, to history? I have really loved history for as long as I can remember. My dad was a real history buff growing up, and he didn't get into it professionally, but really enjoyed it on the side. So when we'd go on vacation, we'd end up at house museums and forts and battlefields. While my mom wasn't history focused, she loved reading and loved sort of, you know, adventure stories and things like that. So that was sort of bred into me, I feel like, as a child, and then that access to public history spaces, I took that into a little bit more of an academic bent and did history as an undergraduate and in graduate school as well. 
and was able to do the academic, but also get back into the public history again. I did an internship at Farmington Historic Plantation, which is another absolute gem here in Louisville, and then in grad school at the Filson, and really learned that I liked that public history connecting people to resources. So I went on and, and did a library science degree with a focus in archives to get a technical understanding of how people were doing that and then ended up about 10 years ago back at the Filson. But yeah, just a real sort of lifelong love of history. So mm-hmm. you weren't that kid that when your parent took you to the fort or the museum would roll your eyes and drag your feet all the way through? Oh, I'm sure I was. <laughs> I, there's, Speaking of my kids. Yeah, I, photographs of like an epic battle my dad and I waged ourselves at Gettysburg when I was about two and a half years old. So I don't say I loved it all the time, but it was normalized. You know, being interested and knowledgeable about history was very normalized in my family and I'm hoping that I'm doing that for my boys as well. So we love libraries and you mentioned the Louisville Free Public Libraries. The Filson is kind of a library so can you tell us how people the public can utilize the Filson as a library? Sure. And you're right. I mean, the Filson is a a chunk of what we do anyway, is a research library and we are open to the public. We have members, but you don't have to be a member to come in. And I think that there is some confusion that stems about who's sort of allowed to access the Filson. And we are absolutely open to the public in normal times when we're not all in quarantine. We're open nine to five Monday through Friday. And we also do remote work because we recognize that A, not everyone can get to Louisville and B, even in Louisville, not everybody is able to get to a place from nine to five. So we're a little bit limited by staff in terms of our hours, but People can always email or call, and that's true now, too. We're mostly email. We, we have our phones up, but there's a delay because of voicemails. So I've been doing, myself and, and the staff have been doing reference since we shut down. So that's sort of the way we're providing access to the collections right now, mostly is via reference. But I mentioned cataloging, and cataloging is another way to make things more accessible to people. So we don't have a ton of material digitized online but we have information about it digitized online. So we have a very thorough database. It's actually a digitized card catalog that's probably 80 to 90 years old at this point. It's something that really has been worked on almost throughout the Filson's history. So it was scanned and digitized, and now we just add on as a database rather than creating little three by five inch index cards to stick into a file. But that is a great way to get into the manuscript collection, for example. And we have different databases for photos, museum objects. We're starting a more robust digitized program. I have an associate curator of digital collections now who does an amazing job. So there's digital exhibits and digital collections online for people who want to interact that way with the collections. And we do have, again, when we're not all quarantined due to a pandemic, we do have in-house small exhibits. So it's not on the scale of, say, what you'll see at the Speed or at the Frasier. They're more one-room exhibits, but they're using our collections to illuminate a topic of local or, or maybe even national interest. So we had one that was supposed to open that was about women in the era of suffrage, of course. It would be very complementary to what the, the Frasier's What's a Vote Worth? Ours was called Women at Work, and we were looking at sort of women stepping into the public sphere. And that will open eventually, and it is online digitally now. So we're trying to balance the two, both in times of quarantine, but also just in general for people who can't physically make it to our space. So the library is one section of what we do. And then there's definitely sort of a public education section with lectures. Again, now they're all virtual, but that's great because even more people can access them. They're free over Zoom. There's live virtual if you want to tune in and watch, but then they're also recorded so people can see it. And we have publications too, which again, it doesn't really matter if you're at home or not for the publications they're still coming out and they're available digitally or people who are members can get paper copies so we're sort of an i think an educational cultural institution but that research library is something that i think makes us different than again some of the more museum focused cultural institutions in town because we're really i think at our core a research institution Where do your items come from? I mean, I I know a lot of them have been around for a very Mm -hmm. long time, but do you still have people donating things? Every day. To you? I mean, and I I almost mean that literally every day. We have some that come sort of organically where someone, maybe their grandmother was a member or, you know, was asked to leave us something. Others we pursue a little bit more, and that varies from curator to curator and over time what the interest is. 
most of it is donated to us. We have a small acquisitions fund, so some things are purchased. A project we're working on now, and I don't want to jump the gun, but is actual documenting of events going on live. And that's not something we have a great history of doing. There's a few bits here and there. So there was some documentation during the 1937 flood because the Filson itself was affected by the flood where we were located then. And there's a great project that I really love where in 1890, after the cyclone ripped through Louisville area in Southern Indiana, the Filson president wrote to the membership and said, send us your recollections of what happened. And so we actually have a cataloged collection of people writing letters back to the president, you know, and that's very much active documentation that you don't see as much of in that era and see more of now. I think, with archives and libraries and museums. So that's something we're trying to engage more in, being more proactive and not just passively waiting for stuff to come to us. On our show, we talk a lot about stories and how stories are important. And part of the Filson's mission statement is to collect, preserve, and tell significant stories of our region. So what is the power of stories from a historian's perspective? I think that's a really interesting question. And I will, I'll caveat my answer by saying I don't necessarily consider myself a historian. I work with historians that are far more talented at storytelling and interpretation than I am. I think that's why I ended up on the archives side of it. But I think the items, the documents or the images or a map or an architectural plan even, they have a lot of stories to tell. And what draws me to it is, as I said, linking that item to the person who's going to be able to suss out their version of a story from it really providing that like raw material and getting it to people and that can be a student doing a history day project that can be you know someone doing their dissertation that could be a genealogist working on family history and really like digging in for a nugget of information it could be a journalist it can be a lawyer sometimes i mean there's really all sorts of stories that different people use archives now, i'm speaking from the filson perspective but really archives in general if i could tell a quick story that I, I find really powerful it's one that gives me goosebumps still home of the innocence which is a louisville institution it's been around for quite some time provides child services sort of was born of several different orphanages merging together and in the mid-2000s, the leadership was contacted by Cave Hill Cemetery saying, you all have a plot here with 220 unmarked burial sites, like graves, and we just want you to know that it's here and there's not really any information on who is here. Home of the Innocence immediately starts fundraising to put a marker on it, but also gathers up volunteers to try to find out who were these 220 children that are buried in this grave in Cave Hill. And... One of the volunteers very regularly came into the Filson. Her name was Jennifer Armstrong, and she used orphanage records that we hold in the archives, funeral home records that we hold in the library and the archives, Cave Hills records themselves. And she and the other volunteers found 219 wow. of the 220 names. And they are carved on the memorial. It was unveiled in November of 2009. And so this is a story that was untold for you know, probably 75 to 100 years, this stuff's there. You just have to be willing to find it. So that's, I think, the power. Some of these untold stories are the powerful stories that come out of the archives, too. That's amazing. That's a great story about a story. That sounds like a tremendous amount of work, uh, almost like putting puzzle pieces together. Absolutely. I really admire the people who just do that nose to the grindstone work. Research is like that. Genealogy is like that. You know, people who are doing more statistical data research. It's a lot of work. But again, in this case, this is, this woman was not a historian or a genealogist. I think she was like a loan analyst, but was coming in and volunteering her time because she felt so strongly about this project. And I really love that too, the passion that people have for, for telling stories or, or memorializing those who have been forgotten. So we're in the midst and have been in the midst of a pretty significant historic event with COVID-19. So tell us what the Filson is doing to try to collect and preserve experiences and stories about this situation that's going on now. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's no doubt that the COVID-19 pandemic has made real changes in all of our lives. And to the credit of my colleagues, they immediately hit the ground running in terms of the idea of we've got to be proactively collecting information about what people are going through and what they are, they are experiencing. So we 
initially set it up with a letter going out to our membership asking people to write in and that could literally mean handwriting or typing or emailing or whatever they wanted to do sort of a what we're going through right now story or memoir we also created a survey for people who aren't like writers that want to answer questions but don't want to freehand six paragraphs or something so we got some answers that way, but then we've also put out a call and whether it's, you know, a show like this or being on the news, or I think there were probably some press releases too, and definitely on our website, just these are the sorts of things we're interested in. These are some prompts. If you do want to write questions that you could answer, and these are other things. So photographs of chalk art or photographs of all the posters that people are creating and putting up children's journals. My son tried. He lasted about a week, I'm sorry to say. But, you know, journaling, whether you're an adult or a child, just notes, groups you might be involved in, like the way they're handling it, if they're sending out like reopening ideas or, or churches or clubs, business organizations, what their shutdown and reopening procedures are. We're really interested in being able to preserve what's going on, whether it's from a business perspective or from a personal, like emotional perspective what's going on and how are people in 100 years going to understand what we all went through so like I said I'm really happy that my colleagues just sort of stepped up and, and put out the call and other places are doing it too and I love that too we don't have to be the only one doing it as long as it's being done the Frasier's done a great job partnering with JCPS to capture children's stories and they call it their their time capsule and it's perfect it's going to be a great chunk of history for people to look at in the future. And I love that they're capturing so many different voices from all over town. I follow the Filson Historical Society on Facebook, and I remember seeing a post about sharing documents or anything that the public has related to COVID. And I know that I gave you all permission to access my blog for anything related to what our family has been going through and me emotionally related to this pandemic. It felt very cool to think that something that my family's experiencing now might be useful to somebody, you know, 100 years from now, who is looking back and is interested about how COVID-19 affected people in Louisville. So I, I thought that was super cool. Absolutely. And blogs, writing, and I, I should also mention there was a writing group that got involved with us. They were supposed to have a talk in March and that got postponed. So they've been sending in literally videos of poetry, audio recordings of poetry, nonfiction, fiction. So it's neat to think that there's a lot of different ways people can engage with this in the future, near future and far future too. So does the Filson have any kind of historical materials from the, the Spanish flu, the 1918 we era do. in Louisville? We do. And it's it's not an overwhelming load of things, but it's an interesting amount. I actually got into researching it about six on Camp Zachary Taylor, which is Louisville's World War One encampment where um, the army sent men to train to send over to France, mostly. And it hit the camp incredibly hard as it did I think a lot of military installations across the country and across the world digging into that is where I started to find out about the pandemic I you know I heard a little bit about it but I wasn't something that was on my radar at all even as someone who'd done history up to the graduate level so I really learned a lot from digging into that in general about it but also about the sources and there's letters where people mention it or talk about what's going on with it or you know so and so's ill there's journals that mention it one of our early president's name was Rogers Clark Ballard Thruston was uh, the leader in Kentucky's Red Cross and they were very actively involved in dealing with the Spanish flu pandemic and so there was a lot in his records about the more, a more organizational records type thing relevant to the flu but what, what really strikes me the most is these personal letters where people are writing about it one collection uh, the disher family papers these women sisters of a man who is overseas write to him about well the city's in quarantine and the church is shut down and they're clearly very catholic and they're not sure what to do with themselves not going to mass well one of them then there's the other sister who says well louisville's a heck of a place now there's no dances at camp taylor how am i supposed to meet anybody <laughs> So it's interesting to see that just how we have many perspectives on quarantine and on the situation today, even within one family 102 years ago, we're seeing that as well. So personal sources, more organizational sources, they're, they're there, and it's, it's interesting. 
So what steps have to be taken to preserve these documents and books that you all acquire? Sure. Well, for the letters, for example, the Disher family letters, they were donated by a descendant, I'm pretty sure, of, of a member of the family. And they were clearly the letters that the son received, son, brother, nephew received in France and then brought back home and kept. We don't have his letters back to them. So it's interesting to think about what is and isn't saved. The family donated those. We make sure they're in an environment that is preservation friendly, I guess, to, depending on what it is, if it's a photograph or a document or a book, there's a little bit difference in terms of temperature and humidity. But we have an environmentally controlled area. We keep things in acid-free containers because that's important so that they're not crumbling over the years. And then we have what we call intellectual control over them, which just means we know what's there, we know where it is, and we have handling policies, whether it's me using it or whether it's anyone who comes in off the street to use it just to be careful and not lean on it or bend it or rip it or use a pen around it. So really, it's some of it's about the environment that it's saved in, and some of it is about just safe handling of it. Because we do want stuff to be used. There's no sense in it sitting in a vault for ages, but it just needs to be used so that in 100 years... It can still be used. In addition to the Disher letters that you mentioned, are there other records or documents that you all have found related to the 1918 pandemic? Like I mentioned, the Red Cross organization, we have some books and pamphlets informing people about it, like a sort of health bulletins, you might say, but there's really not a lot. I want to find pictures because especially when I'm giving a talk and I gave a talk on Camp Taylor, you want to illustrate things. At the University of Louisville has an amazing photo archive. Um, it's part of the archives and special collections there. And one of their big collections is Caulfield and Shook. And it was two photographers who really just documented this city in an amazing, amazing way. And they have an image from Camp Zachary Taylor of the YMCA hostess house. And so this is where you'd send telegrams if you were a soldier, if you had a female family member or maybe a fiance coming or girlfriend to meet you, that was a safe place to meet. And it's a picture of people around the telegraph station and almost everyone is wearing a mask because masks were something during the flu pandemic as well that were recommended. We even have some like instructions like this is how you make your mask. And everyone's wearing one. And then there's, of course, the guy in the back who's got his around his neck. And I think that demonstrates that, you know, some people are trying and some people, I don't mean that he wasn't trying. Who knows why it wasn't around his face. But there's just different ways of dealing with the recommendations, whether it's 1918 or whether it's 2020. So since we're talking all things public health on this episode, Louisville had a pretty significant TB, tuberculosis epidemic in the early 1900s. And actually, one of our guests, James Markert, wrote a fictionalized account that took place at Waverly Hills Sanatorium. So I'm wondering what type of documents and books and letters the Filson has related to TB and how it affected Louisville. Yes, absolutely. And I think as I suggested with the influenza pandemic, we know a lot about it now, but I, I wouldn't have been thinking about it five years ago. I don't think people are, are thinking about TB as serious of an epidemic or pandemic really as it was. It, it really affected, I bet, every family, not only in Louisville, but really around the country. And I, I just don't think it's even in the public consciousness right now. Again, unless maybe you know about Waverly here in Louisville and you're like, oh, that haunted place, it was the TB sanitarium. But do people even know what that was? We do some really interesting resources on that at the Filson. And one of my Amazing co-workers, Dr. Lynn Pohl, who's a medical historian and also a cataloger at the Filson, she gave a talk on this very topic, and I would recommend people check out our YouTube channel to watch it. But she tipped me off on some of our great resources. And something I think is really interesting in this, the TB epidemic isn't like a year and then it was over. It was century almost, you know, that it really affected people. So we have letters and records and publications about dealing with it from the early 1800s on. Something that I find very fascinating is people actually built houses in Mammoth Cave to live and be treated there, thinking that that cooler environment and the, I mean, I don't want to call it dry, but the different, I guess, environment of a cave would be good for consumption. Consumption is what they were called, it, like the wasting disease. It was called a little bit earlier before the tuberculosis name. So we have documents saying I was treated in Mammoth Cave or a doctor who was treating people in, in Mammoth Cave. So that's sort of early records. And you fast forward to around the turn of the century and you've got the Anti-Tuberculosis League in Louisville and then the Tuberculosis League that is recording numbers and statistics and fundraising. And then you have 
the sanitarium and the hospital. And there's records and reports on that with really amazing pictures of what they're doing to treat patients. We have architecture records about building Waverly from DX Murphy, who was a big architect in Louisville around the turn of the century, or his company was, and a few others as well. And then we have two new accessions. I haven't had my hands on them yet, but I know that Lynn talks about them. And one is actually an autograph book of a woman who was treated at Waverly and got all the other patients and the doctors to sign her book as she was leaving. And then a photo album from the 1920s. And I haven't seen any of the pictures, but I'm really intrigued because I think that's going to really open my eyes in terms of what it looked like, what Waverly specifically looked like. And there's absolutely the documentation there. And not to mention, for all of these things, the Courier-Journal I mean, you can read and read and read about what people are dealing with. Um, I mean, it's through the lens of a newspaper versus a personal letter or a photograph, but I think there's a lot of history in there that is accessible to at least Jefferson County and I think the neighboring residents through the Free Public Library's website. Were there any other diseases or outbreaks that affected this area that we might not be there, thinking of? In, in the 19th century, there were epidemics regularly. Two that jumped to my mind would be yellow fever and cholera. Cholera probably more in Louisville than yellow fever. Yellow fever was, I think, a little bit more prevalent further south. But this is something that would come every five or so years and just really devastate the area. And it would hit the inner city and places that didn't have great drainage. And it's something that as we move into more of like a public health-minded era of the 1900s, of germ theory, of different sanitation that we start to get away from. But there are absolutely letters and published treatises that would would come up regularly. If you just think about like life expectancy and you might look at a family plot in a cemetery and see that half of the children are deceased before they're aged five or six. I mean, life was very, very different, even in a city. Not, not This is not a wilderness because of these public health epidemics that would just sort of sweep people away. With this pandemic, it makes me realize how we are sort of living in this weird bubble of sanitation and hygiene that is really unique historically because it's only been less than 100 years that people have had really reliable sanitation. So it's interesting to get the perspective and and to remember that we're kind of the odd ones historically because we do have access to things that keep us generally much safer than people in the past. Absolutely. And I think we can be thankful for our, our clean running water that we have access to and antibiotics that we have access to, but we are facing something that, you know, we don't have a vaccine for yet, and it's going to take a while to get the herd immunity. So we're sort of pushed back to what it would have been like in 1918, when confronted with something very staggering and and worldwide like this. So with COVID-19, we're seeing a lot of public disagreement on masks, you know, are they effective? Do they work? What should we do? And Have you found any documents or things at the Filson that relate to this disagreement or some people wearing masks, some people not? There there seems to be a lot of animosity. Is that something that you found in documents that the Filson has? Yeah, the the picture from UofL is really the only visual I had that I encountered, although I, I bet there were more in the paper, the Courier Journal as well, of people wearing that. Although I'm hearkening back to the letters I mentioned when the one sister's very worried about church being closed and there's a, a mention of their father saying, no one's coming to the house. We are staying here alone. I don't want any soldiers especially out here. And then the other sister who's lamenting not having this contact with the soldiers. I think letters and, and documents certainly show different response to that. It's a little bit more in, say, the, the newspaper or some organizational records that show a little pushback maybe even from companies. So one of the railway companies said, well, we weren't told that we had to open our windows and, and have less passengers, so we're just operating as normal. And then, you know, the next day, the public health office calls them and says, you too have to lower your windows and only have half as many people on your trains and run them quicker if you can. So I think there's always a little bit of, well, I haven't been told specifically to do this or haven't been required specifically to do this, so I'm not going to. But I think today what I see is a a difference maybe even from 100 years ago. 100 years ago, people could listen to their radio, 
could read the paper and get information. There were pamphlets handed out. Now it's sort of a, a wave on people. I mean, I think almost everyone has, you know, whether it's the news on a TV in your house or whether it's your smartphone and you're getting pushes of information, there's the opportunity to be better informed about what's going on. But then there's also the opportunity to get a lot of different viewpoints about it. So what I what I would hope is that we're connected as a world and we're finding out what's working and what's not working and trying to all move progressively in a way of what's working to, to take care of each other. So you mentioned the Filson having public talks that are posted online. Does the Filson have any upcoming events that you want to make sure listeners know about? Absolutely. Well, we have one talk coming up on August 11th. Carolyn Frazier, who wrote Prairie Fires, which is about Laura Ingalls Wilder, who was a personal, like, intense hero of mine, reading all the Little House books growing up. And it's very eye-opening to read real biographies of people that you might have had different thoughts about when you were a kid. And I'd, I'd read a biography of her even in grade school that was like, this is crazy. Her stories are all lies. I'm like, no, she's just putting a lens on it. You know, as you get older, you sort of see these things. But I would highly recommend that. It was supposed to happen back in March. And so we've been able to postpone it, but get Carolyn to come back on Zoom. And that is free and open to anyone. If you go to our website, you can register. And there aren't any public health talks coming up, but I would definitely encourage people also on our website to check out our YouTube channel and some of our past talks because we have one on um, tuberculosis by Dr. Lynn Pohl. There's also a really interesting one from this May by my colleague Jana Meyer on mental health and Dorothy Joseph, who was a very early 20th century mental health proponent here in Louisville as well. Um, So there's certainly things in our catalog, you might say, of past events that are, are very relevant to public health. I'm really interested in the Prairie Fires talk because I used to love the Laura Ingalls books. And that author, I think, won the Pulitzer Prize for this I book, believe, didn't she? I believe. She was at least listed for it if she wasn't. Yeah. It's a great read, I yeah. think. And I remember I was going to go to it before the pandemic, and it was like $15, which, you know, I would gladly have paid. But hey, if I can see it for free, why not? So <laughs> anyone anywhere can zoom in on this. If someone wants to check out the YouTube channel mm-hmm. and see some of your speakers, what's the name of the YouTube channel? Our website is filsonhistorical.org. And we have a specific part of the site called Bringing History Home. And there's several places on our homepage to access that. And it has links to our YouTube channel, to our social media channels, to um, past events. Okay, um, so that may be the easiest way to sort of immediately jump in on it. So if anyone is a friend or a liked of ours on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, I think you should be able to stumble onto our YouTube channel that is currently still Filson Historical KY. And you'll find mostly lectures, but there are a few historical videos on there as well that are pretty cool. There's some snow scenes from the 1920s, I think in Central Park in Louisville. There's a little girl doing the Charleston outside of her home on Boulevard Napoleon in the Highlands. And there's some neat old video footage that has been digitized on there too. We'll be right back and we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Jenny Cole and with Carrie. And I want to know what you are reading this summer on these hot summer days, Carrie. So... This was not intentional. I read two books back to back. The first one, it's a autobiography called Men We Reaped by Jesmyn Ward. And Amy, as you know, I, I don't know. I'm like a Jesmyn Ward fangirl over here, even though I don't like the idea of fangirling. But anyway, it kind of serves two purposes. It tells about her life, so growing up in Mississippi, but it's also about five young men one of whom was her brother, who died young, young black men. Now, they died all under different circumstances. So one died, I I believe, from a heart condition. One was in a, a car accident. I think one was involved with gun violence. So all five of them died in different ways. But what she's talking about is the impact of that on her and on the community. So I read that one first, and then I read Educated by Tara Westover. And I I was late to the party, you know, when that was like super popular and had come out, I didn't read it. That book is also an autobiography. Tara Westover grows up in Idaho, 
And her parents are, I guess you would call them survivalists, extremists. They're Mormons, but they also, they're very much anti-government and they homeschool, but they don't really homeschool. So both books are about difficult circumstances. What I found interesting and what I didn't expect was how similar these two books are. If you just look at them, look at a brief summary, you wouldn't think that there's a lot of similarities, but there really are because they're both written by women and they're both written by women who came from circumstances that didn't really set them up to get higher education and to become successful and to have a voice, I guess, and to have a platform where they could speak. And so I found that there were a lot of similarities. Both women moved away from their homes. So Jesmyn Ward, I, I believe she got her BA and her MA in California, and then she went to Michigan to get her MFA. But she kept feeling this pull back to her home, even though there weren't a lot of opportunities for her. That was her home. That was her community. And with Tara Westover, she ended up going to Cambridge and getting a PhD. And even though essentially a number of members of her family were abusive, she kept feeling this pull to go home. So that was a similarity that I didn't expect. A big difference, though, that I don't know that I would have necessarily picked up on had I not read them consecutively is how each community looks at the role of government. And so with Jesmyn Ward's book, it was how the government could be used to help people, but it's not accessible. It's not fulfilling maybe a role that it could have, whereas in Tara Westover's book, her family looked at the government with suspicion. And they could have taken some things that were offered by government, but they didn't trust government. And so in both cases, there's a lack of trust, but it's for different reasons. So I would recommend both books, but I would also recommend reading them one right after the other because putting them together, I think, gives you a lot more to think about by comparing and contrasting these women's experiences. I highly recommend those. Uh, I'm impressed. You're only one year late on the Tara Westover book, Karen. Oh, really? Yeah. It just, came, yeah it just came out last summer. So you're not that oh. far behind. Well, you know, I mean, the, 2020 has lasted like 30 years. So, <laughs> Yes. Honestly. It definitely feels that way, doesn't it? <laughs> so, Jenny, what have you been reading? Well, I, I, I will start off by saying that my eight-year-old and I binge read the entire Harry Potter series during COVID. So that's been a lot of my readings. I read to them at night and then I typically like fall asleep while reading. So I haven't done a lot of personal reading lately because of that, but I'm really excited. I'm going to be picking up a book from a friend today that is the third in a trilogy. And the first book in the trilogy is called Wolf Hall. It's by Hilary Mantel. And it is a historical fiction about the Tudor era, Henry VIII in England, but it's through the eyes of Thomas Cromwell. And he's sort of like an advisor, but really rises up from nothing. He's someone that has zero nobility, so to speak. He, I think he was a blacksmith's son. In history, that is accurate. And rises up to being someone who's very powerful, but then like so many people close to Henry VIII gets toppled, whether it's by their own greed or by Henry's to say instability but issues with women <laughs> perhaps specifically in the church so the first book goes through the Catherine of Aragon some of the Anne Boleyn up through Thomas More's death and that's Wolf Hall and the second book is called Bring Up the Bodies and that sort of just moves you further along down the chain of Henry's reign and his wives and the, the continual rise to power that Cromwell's seeing so the third in the trilogy which is called The Mirror and the Light which is what I'm picking up next just was published this year in March I did not actually realize it had been published until yesterday but I'm really excited to get my hands on it because it's sort of the, the final book and I think it's gonna really show Cromwell's downfall thing it's an interesting perspective that I haven't read before and for me I do read a lot of histories like non-fiction history although I enjoy historical fiction too usually historical fiction sort of leads me then to wanting to read an actual biography of an individual or of, of the era. I remember I was in a failed book club probably about 15 years ago that was reading The Other Boleyn Girl. Mm. 
And I did not care for the book, and I was the only one in the group who read it, and I was very frustrated by that. But I went and picked out a couple biographies of the Boleyn sisters, and that was really neat to compare and contrast the beautiful creations of, of historical fiction, but then also the, the reality of what you're able to dig out of the archives. I enjoy the historical fiction side of things too, but then I have to check myself on the archival sources because... Because I I love historical fiction, but is it hard thinking, okay, how much of this is really accurate? And they're going to embellish some of it. You know, you have to expect that. But how much is too much? Sometimes it's harder than other times. Um, I know that sounds weird, but I have a harder time with movies, I think, like not picking them into absolute shreds. Or if it's a, a subject that I've studied personally or I've written about personally, like not wanting to just absolutely tear to shreds anything I'm reading about it. But I try to enjoy it. So for example, I really like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. (laughs) It's a beach read. It's not, you know, a heavy thing, but I enjoyed pretending like I knew that much about Abraham Lincoln's thoughts. Cause like no history book you're gonna read is gonna get you into his brain that well. However, on the flip side, the author writes about Lincoln's BFF, Joshua Fry Speed, who I've done a ton of work on. I wrote my thesis on his brother. I interned and volunteer at his family home. And he did not get anything right about the Speeds. <laughs> so, you know, I, I want to write the guy a letter. You know, like I shredded that part, but I really still was able to enjoy this like inner glimpse. So I think it's a balance for me. Did you know that there is a buddy mystery series between Lincoln and Joshua no, Speed? No, I'm going to have to check that out. Yes, but I am part of the Speed Museums. They oh, have a yeah, reading club. Yeah. And one of the books they did last year was the first one in the series. Oh, absolutely. And I believe that the gentleman who wrote them is like a Lincoln scholar. Oh, interesting. Well, I'll definitely have to check and those out It's then. about their time in Missouri. Or the first one, anyway, starts when they're in Missouri. Yeah, so the name of that one is called These Honored Dead by Jonathan F. Putnam. And it's uh, the first one in the Lincoln and Speed mystery series. So, yeah, you should check that out. Interesting. All right, Amy. So what have you had going on? So I mentioned the book that I'm going to talk about today in episode 51 when we talked to our guest Giselle Spurgeon about dystopian and pandemic fiction. It won the 2019 Nebula Award for Best Novel, and that is one of the biggest awards given in the genre of science fiction. And so the book is A Song for a New Day by Sarah Pinsker. And Carrie, as you know, I'm not a huge reader of science fiction, but there was something about the description that appealed to me. And this one is about music and performance. I've lately come to learn that I do enjoy it if it has a little bit of art or culture mixed in with it. So Station Eleven would be a good example of this. And in that one, that one was sort of pandemic fiction, but it revolved around a traveling troupe of Shakespearean actors. So this was published September of last year. And I want you to remember that because that is very important, as you will see as I begin to tell you about this book. The timing is very important. The book begins with One of our main characters, Lucy, and her band getting ready for their big concert at a beautiful theater somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. But then something horrible happens. Terrorists blow up a baseball stadium somewhere in the United States, kills hundreds of people, and there are terrorist threats on all the major large venues. So Lucy and her band, though, go ahead and decide to play the concert because they decide music could be a salve for the fear people are feeling out in the real world. So her band's concert is the last large musical performance in the before. And I'm putting before in air quotes because that's what Mm -hmm. they call it in the book. So then shortly after, there's also a pandemic. There's a pox that kills many, but also has many survivors and that they're scarred for life. So the combination of these two events causes the government to ban large gatherings, anyone over 30 people. The problem is that the government keeps these regulations years after the pox has dissipated. Terrorism is no longer the problem that it once was. And so this has some interesting effects. The main one for this story is that most of the people wear what is called a hoodie. I mean, she never describes it in detail. Could be an actual hoodie, but I imagined it more as like a virtual screen that you wear in front of your face that allows you to experience everything virtually without having to come in contact with people. When you go to a restaurant, you would sit in your own isolation booth. There is a company called Super Wally 
that can drone you any product you order within hours, which to me, I think is sort of an Amazon comparison. Music is now mainly experienced through a medium called Stage Hollow, which allows users to experience a band or a concert as if they're really there when in fact the musicians are performing in a small cubicle behind a green screen with no interaction with an audience. So Lucy's not really interested in performing in that way. So she buys an abandoned piece of property in Baltimore and uses the basement as an underground musical venue. You need a special password to get in. So think of a speakeasy during Prohibition, but with music. And guess what the name of the club is? Well, you can't really guess, but I'm going to tell you. It's called <laughs> It's called 2020, if that's not crazy. Now, really, 2020 is the address of the house, but in our current situation, it has so many more meanings. It was just kind of freaky, really. The next character in our book is named Rosemary, and she is younger than Lucy, she was a child when the before, in, in quotes, ended. So her parents lived in a city, but they were so frightened that they moved to a farm in rural America. And she was raised to believe that groups of people were scary. So to stay safe, they're out in the country. But when she's 24, she decides to apply for a position with Stage Hollow. They hire her as a music recruiter, even though she hasn't really ever been to any musical concert. She's only listened to them in her hoodie. Her job is to travel around the country, find out where musicians are playing, where the illegal concerts are, find the good bands, sign them up for auditions with the company to move their music virtually for larger audiences. This sounds exciting to Rosemary because she's never really been anywhere. But when she goes on her first assignment, she's paralyzed by being in these crowded clubs. So many people are smushed close to one another, and she's freaked out that everybody's bodies are so warm. In fact, in her family, no one even really hugged each other. And it, there's a quote in the book where she says, how did they stand it shoulder to shoulder, front to back with total strangers with their heat and their odors? She's not totally wrong. She's, mean- not, she's not totally wrong. I'll agree. Like, I don't particularly <laughs> like that going to a club. And the older I get, I like it less. But I just thought it's it's interesting that she gets panic attacks when she is in a group. So these clubs, I don't think are smushed in the way that we would imagine now. I'm not imagining that everybody's like in a mosh pit or something. (laughs) It's not like Pearl Jam 1993, right? No, I just imagine it as being a moderately filled room. So Rosemary and Lucy's paths cross when Rosemary comes to the 2020 club to scope out the bands for Stage Hollow. So will that help the musicians or will it have disastrous consequences? That's a conflict in the book. So this book was a fascinating look at how humans need connection, not just virtual connection. It is in ways a cautionary tale about how it's not okay to become used to social distancing over time. Obviously, in our current situation, it's necessary. At least you and I think that it is. But if it becomes something used to control us long past the time when the danger is over, we need to be aware of that too. Extremes on either end are always dangerous. But partly what makes art, especially performance art, is the audience. Music and theater require other humans to make it complete. It is part of the art. So music needs a listener. A player needs an audience to watch it. Can you do it over virtually or over Zoom in our case? Maybe, but is it really the same experience? So this is a great book for music lovers. There isn't a lot of talk about the actual pox. So if you're squeamish, this book shouldn't really bother you. It's more about the aftermath of what happens when we let our fear overtake us. And what does art mean in society? The other thing that appeals to me about this book is that if you are a person who's a bit hesitant to read dystopian fiction, this one isn't dealing with a life or death situation per se. The stakes are a little less consequential. Yes, it would be horrible for our artists to lose their freedoms or for the artistic experience to be dumbed down. But it's not on the same level as, say, women only being used for breeding purposes, like in The Handmaid's Tale. I just feel like the stakes are a little bit lower. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I don't think I had thought about from what we're dealing with now, people could develop phobias. Yes. Yeah. You know, like, let's hope there's some kind of vaccine at some point, but people could legit have post-traumatic stress resulting from being around people 
at a concert, you know, or at a theatrical performance, once we're able to reestablish those. I mean, until you had talked about that, I don't think I had ever really considered right. that. I'm, yeah. I'm definitely going to have to add that book to my uh, TBR, <laughs> my never ending goes on forever TBR list. But that sounds good. That sounds interesting. All right. Well, when we come back, we are going to be asking Jenny Cole her top five. We are back with Jenny Cole from the Filson, and we're going to be asking her her top five. You like to take urban hikes within city limits in the green spaces with your family. What has been the top interesting living thing, bug, or animal you have seen with your family while on one of these hikes? Well, my three-year-old and I were at the Louisville Nature Center, which is very close to the Louisville Zoo, a few weeks ago, and we were walking along the paths, and we saw a mother deer with a fawn, and the fawn was actually nursing far off the trail, but visible enough. I'd never seen that in the wild like that before ever, and it was a really pause and reflect kind of moment. The beauty of motherhood, and then my son (laughs) runs off and rolls into a puddle, and of course, (laughs) that part of the beauty of motherhood was was brought back. Um, He wasn't particularly interested, and he enjoys the shiny bugs at the Louisville Nature Center and the mud instead, but it was really pretty beautiful, very peaceful and quiet, despite being right by Newburgh Road and Poplar Level Road and everything there, so that was definitely a a highlight recently. A couple years ago, my family took a hike there, and usually what I find, and it's not any better now that my kids are older, they still make a crap ton of noise and so if there's any wildlife that's even around I'm I'm surprised but taking a hike at the Louisville Nature Center and there was a deer and it literally just crossed 10 feet wow. in front of us and it just stopped like hey you know like you said it's like this is right in the middle of fairly busy area of town and so I was not in any way expecting that so that was a real treat. A couple of years ago I was walking in my neighborhood and it's you know it's a suburban neighborhood and I see this spotted fawn sitting on the side of somebody's house and I was with my dog and my dog starts going crazy and that fawn is just sitting there and not moving and I thought oh my gosh it has its mother run off and died like what should I do with it and so I call a friend and I'm like google what to do if you find a fawn because I was worried that it was going to die you know and so she looked up the national park service like what you should do basically you should leave them alone and I did not know this at the time I'm glad that she looked it up, but that the mamas will leave them there and they will not move until mama comes back and like bonks them on the head, kind of. And they could be gone for a long time. So I thought I was so worried about that fawn that go and drive by every hour to see (laughs) if the mama had come back. And finally, and I saw a a mama deer, not right next to the baby, but she was a few streets over, but you could tell she was headed that way. I think we need to institute actual human children. Like you don't (laughs) move until mom bonks you on the head. (laughs) That would be excellent. So question number two, your family has a virtual game night. So tell us about this and what is the top benefit of this new family activity? So my parents and my sister both live in northern Kentucky, Cincinnati area. So it's about an hour and a half away. And we usually see them regularly. We have not seen them since the pandemic began. My parents have some health issues and my brother-in-law is an emergency room doctor. So everyone's sort of on the virtual track right now. Um, So it's been a really neat time for the adults and older kids to be together. We can talk on Zoom and then play games on our phones. And so it's really interconnected. And I think it's called Jackbox maybe, but they're drawing games and sort of word games and they're just silly. And we have a really good time. And my sister and her family are about to move out to Seattle. So I think it's going to be a way, even post-pandemic, <laughs> that we can still find ways to kind of like game together, even though we're not going to be able to just drive an hour and a half and see them anymore. So we used to play Jackbox quite a bit. I didn't know you could do it with people who weren't in the house with you. They give you like a code and you put it into your phone. So my sister or brother-in-law, whoever has the subscription, so they share their screen And then that's what we're all looking at. But then we're entering information on a tablet or on a cell phone or something through a code. So it's really a neat way virtually 
Oh, we have to, to do something. That. Question number three. As a working mother with young children, time to yourself to enjoy things that you like is often minimal. So what is the top hobby or endeavor that you imagine you'd like to do if you had more hours in the day? <laughs> it's funny. I think about sometimes the thing that I've probably done the least of since I had kids was any sort of like volunteer type work. I feel like all of my volunteer work is completely focused on either them and their extracurriculars or maybe their or their schools, you know, that sort of thing. And not that that's not volunteer work, but it it feels a little bit different to me. So I think in an ideal world, I would probably do some sort of volunteer consulting. When I lived in New Jersey, I did a little bit. There was a, a group there called CAPES and it was Caucus Archival Preservation Services. And we would go to small organizations that had records and give them advice on preserving them or taking care of them and do a write-up and then they could use that to apply for grants and things like that. And that was really fulfilling. Um, I also, I, I mentioned earlier that I used to work at Farmington Historic Plantation and I would love to do more volunteer work there. Current director is really doing a lot to make sure that it's not just a designer's show house, but that we're telling a very realistic and sometimes harsh story about what life meant for not just the Speed family who lived in the mansion, but also the 50 to 60 enslaved people who were there over time and what their life and their families were like, so that it's uncomfortable in really an important historical way. And I really want to support that. So I'd love to be able to do more to support Farmington. So you are a fan of history podcasts, one of which is The Past and a Curious by a friend of the show, Mick Sullivan. He was on our show last fall. Tell us about some of your favorites and what is the top historic event you heard about from a podcast that completely blew your mind? Uh, I have to give a big shout out to Mick. He is amazing. And yes, he is. I love the past and the curious. And my son goes to Fraser Camp and loves it. Past and the curious is a household favorite at my house. Maybe the most for me. I did order the like women's size t-shirt when I <laughs> joined their Patreon account. I did not get the kids <laughs> size t-shirt for my kids. It was all mine. The other history podcasts that is really my go-to that I've been listening to for probably at least eight years now is Stuff You Missed in History Class. And it's gone through a few different iterations. Right now, the hosts are Holly Fry and Tracy V. Wilson, and they're my favorite hosts so far. But I really like how they will talk about a subject but not shy away from the difficulties about the individual or the circumstances or how they might be challenging, especially to our modern perspectives. They did an episode last November on the 50th, anniversary of the occupation of Alcatraz. And that was an occupation by Native Americans mm. regarding tr breaking treaties and land rights. The only thing I knew about it was the mentions that came through in Tommy Orange's book, There, There. Yes, I was uh, just going to yeah, say, I, it's I, I read, like it, So it came in that book. I didn't know how much of it was fact and fiction. So I didn't really think about it. But then I listened to this two part episode that they did on what led up to the occupation and then the occupation itself. And it just really struck me as something that even again, as someone not that I need to know all of history or could know all of history, even studying it my whole life, but someone who is, you know, a citizen of this country and is just woefully ignorant about the 20th century struggles that Native Americans in this country have gone through I think it's really important and I'm so grateful to have things like stuff you missed in history class to educate me on topics like that. So your eight-year-old tries to get you into Fortnite so what would you say your video game skill level is and what do you find to be the top most difficult thing about playing video games? I would say my skill level on a touch screen like my phone or a tablet is maybe a four on a zero to 10 scale, maybe not even that much, but on a good day when I'm alert, a four. <laughs> the thing that's the most challenging for me, frankly, is the controllers. You know, take me back to my Super NES where there was up, down, left, right, A and B, <laughs> and I'll kill it, but I cannot handle like three triggers and two knobs and 17 buttons. Like, I think I'm dating myself by saying that, but it is just mind blowing. Say, to me. you're not dating yourself as much as me thinking of Pac-Man and Donkey Kong. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, give me the arcade where I've literally got the joystick and the buttons. Well, both of my sons play video games, but the 12-year-old is definitely, like, 
his father in terms of like loving video games. And I get motion sick because the visual, you know, it's just, it's like rapid movement and I just can't do it. That's just not a way that I can connect with him, which sort of makes me feel bad, but I'm like, it's not worth being nauseous for two hours. Like I love you, but let's find another common interest that we have. So good on you for even (laughs) attempting to do that. So, Jenny, thank you so much for being a guest today. We really appreciate you coming over and, and talking with us about the, the Filson. Well, thanks for having me. And I, you know, I hope people will join us for a bunch of upcoming events and learn a little bit more about our region's history. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.